I'm very excited today and very excited to conclude our series today. If you are new to us here, we are concluding a four-part series on the kingdom of God. And what I wanted to do was share that God's will is the prayer that he taught us in Matthew 6, says, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get to partner with God to make the realities of heaven become a reality in our world. That means in heaven, there's no sickness, sorrow, separation, shame, none of those things. It is just the pure presence of God. But he has commissioned us to partner with him to pull those realities and make them a reality into this world through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Now, kingdom, as we defined it, is very simple. Kingdom means king's domain. It's God's rulership. And when he created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply, take dominion over this world. Adam and Eve's job before they sinned was to advance the kingdom of God around the entire world. And we've been discovering that as believers, especially in the church, if you are a member of the church of Jesus Christ, guess what? You're a minister. I'm not the only minister in the house of God. Each and every one of us have been called to carry out the gospel of Jesus Christ and to expand his kingdom in any area of influence. And last week, we opened up and expressed the topic of grace and grace being the unmerited favor of God. In my personal definition, grace is everything that Jesus provided for us on the cross, our healing, our salvation, our forgiveness, our deliverance, our prosperity, all that he purchased because he took our sin has been given to us. And that to me is the grace of God. And so we described how God's grace is really the fuel to operate in the kingdom of God, the fuel to operate in the kingdom of God. And today, to conclude our series, I want to show how we can partner grace and faith, because they're really a one-two punch in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to talk about that today, the grace of God. I'm so grateful for a powerful visual of our drama team showing that it's not about our works. It's about us operating in the grace of God and acting out in faith. So let's pray, and we'll conclude our series here today. Father, thank you so much just for the opportunity to be in your house here this morning on a gorgeous Texas day where we can open up your word, where we can sing praises to your name. And now as we conclude this series, we pray, Father, that you would meet us here in a powerful way and speak to our hearts more than just the few notes I have here at the pulpit. But God, let your Holy Spirit speak a word of wisdom. Let your Spirit speak to our hearts and bring us an individual word. Lead us now in this time. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, I come from a very large family. My dad has some 12 brothers and sisters all but one is still alive. And my mom is the oldest of seven girls. My grandpa really wanted a boy and uh, did not succeed in that. That's why I'm Rudy. I'm named after my grandpa because I was the first boy born into the family. And so I come from a large family and I got about 200 first cousins. I'm not exaggerating. So many that there's so many, I don't even know their names. And they all have five kids each. So my family is huge. And so 15 years ago, when my son was born, my wife and I prayed and we discussed and we thought, I think we're good with one. I think we're good with one. And then we talked to both sides of our families, both sides parents, and said, what are your thoughts if we were just to say, we think we're good with Gabriel? And emphatically, I said, yes, like, yes, please, that'd be awesome. That means one birthday, one Christmas, one sporting event at a time. So, hey, it worked out great for our family on all aspects of our family, but it really worked out for Gabriel because Gabriel has all these grandparents who are still alive, all these aunts and uncles who are still alive, and he's, a, he's an awesome kid. He's got tons of friends. So on his birthday, he makes bank. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. 
When we went to San Diego two years ago to celebrate his 13th birthday, we wanted him to be with family and with friends. This kid pulled in over $600 in cash and gift cards. And what I love about my son is that he's really good with his money. He's got a great savings account for a kid his age. Uh, he's very thrifty with his spending. He doesn't blow his money on things. I mean, he's really good at his money. But I remember one day he was on his PlayStation playing online with some of his friends, and they all just bought a game, you know, probably about 20 bucks or so. And he says, I want, I want to buy this game to play with my friends. So he's on his console, he's got his headphones on, he's playing, he goes, hey, dad, would you mind running down to 7-Eleven and getting me a gift card so I can buy this game? I said, sure. And I know the kid's rolling, so I said, uh, uh, how are you going to pay for this, son? And this is what he says. He goes, I'll just grab a 20 out of my nightstand. <laughs> just grab a 20 out of my nightstand. Sure enough, I open up his nightstand. He's got a wad of 20s in his nightstand. <laughs> and he said it in such a way, it was like, yeah, just grab a 20 out of my nightstand and uh, treat yourself to something nice, pops, you know? <laughs> just so matter of fact with it. Now, Gabriel was given a blessing of money. He was given the blessing, and that blessing turned into a tool to allow him to buy a gaming console, a video game, something that he really wanted, whatever his heart desired that his parents would allow him to get. It was a tool. And family, you and I have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have a tool of God's grace, and we can use this tool to help expand the kingdom of God. We are given a tool not just for our needs, but we are given a tool to help the hurting and the lost and those who have no hope and to bring them a hope that will completely impact their all eternity. And so today I want to focus on the grace of God and more so on how it is the stepping stone to stepping out in faith. Andrew Womack has a great uh, quote on this, and he says that faith is the positive response to God's grace. Faith is the positive response to God's grace. And again, it's not just for our benefit, but so that we can be used by God for the benefit of others. And there's really this marriage between grace and faith. It's very rare that you see them used just one at a time. You always see this partnership. And I want us to fully understand that this morning. I mean, they quoted Ephesians 2.8, which says that it is by grace through faith that we are saved and not of ourselves. Grace through faith. And then in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says that Moses brought the law, but grace and truth were realized by Jesus Christ. Now, grace is unmerited favor. It is the unearned favor and blessing of God. But faith in the Greek, it's actually defined as the Greek word pistis, which means a conviction of truth. So grace is the unmerited favor, everything we need in our salvation and to live this life for God. But faith is the conviction of that truth that so compels us to want to step out and do something for God and for his will to be done on earth. And you know, many believers are uncomfortable when the preacher starts talking about grace. Why? Because there's this big movement out there right now called the hyper-grace movement, where, well, Jesus died for everybody's sin, and doesn't matter if we sin or not, so might as well just sin, because it's not going to affect my relationship with God. I can just do whatever I want, and so forth, and many churches and Christians and pastors get upset with this, because they think that this revelation is helping people with a license to sin. And, it, and because it's been abused, because grace has been contorted a bit, now a lot of people don't even want to talk about it. And I'm so against that. And let me clear up a couple things. First off, many will say that grace gives you a license to sin. 
Well, I firmly believe that since the first creation of mankind and every other human being since has never needed a license to sin. We're pretty darn good at sinning in of ourselves. We don't have to worry about that. But in the church, there's always going to be perversion. There's always going to be twisting and turns. There's always going to be greed and selfishness and preachers who want to make money. And so they use the things charismatically of the church. There's always going to be abuses. But I am a pastor who wants to have a church that stands upon this word right here. And when there's 145 different references to grace in God's word, I refuse to let the abuses of others dictate how we're going to operate in the power and the truth of God. We need grace in order to carry out what God has for our families, for our church, and for this world. We cannot expand the kingdom of God without the power of grace and a conviction of truth to stand upon faith. Now, there's two real big dangers, two big dangers in trying to operate in faith. The first is that you're a Christian who has no clue about grace. Much like Pastor Wally and his crazy hair up here, you know, he had no idea about grace. It is such a a crime, it's such a, a tragedy to see a believer who has been given all things through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and authority and to have no clue and to live their lives as if it hasn't even been done for them. It's a complete tragedy. But at the same time, you could be a believer that understands grace and all that Jesus brought for you, but you have no faith. You're full of fear. You're full of doubt. You're full of all kinds of other things. But whatever reason, you are paralyzed in this and you're not stepping out in faith. But James 2.14 tells us that faith without works is dead. And here's the cool thing about it is that Jesus, when I read about Jesus in the scriptures, which, you know, the first time I read the gospels, I thought Jesus was a jerk. He was so blunt, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. I was like, dang, I thought you were supposed to be this loving Jesus and so forth. And it took me a while to understand that Jesus wasn't angry at people. He was angry at legalism. He was angry at the religious spirit. He was angry at the the tragedy of not walking in God's grace and trying to do it in your own works and your performance. Jesus was never impressed by keeping the rules perfectly, but he was always impressed by faith. I've never seen such faith in all of Israel Faith has always moved the hand of God, but he's never been impressed by our good works and so forth because he has taken care of all of it. And we need a healthy balance of grace and faith and works in a proper perspective. And I want to teach us something here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we are going to read a story of Mephibosheth, one of those big Bible names. So if you're, uh, if you're an expecting mother here today and you're looking for a baby name, uh, I don't know if you'd ever consider Mephibosheth, you know, Andy and Becca already have their kid's name picked out, so I don't know, but chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, we're going to begin in verse 5 and read about five verses here. Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan. As a little boy, his nurse was carrying him out in a rush and tripped and fell, and he was lame since a, a little child. And he lived a poor life, but David wanted to shed some favor on his life because of Jonathan and because of Saul. So let's begin in verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him to the house of Michar, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And let me just pause. I mean, these names are crazy. If you ever struggle with just pronouncing the names, you don't have to go to school or seminary. Just say it however you want. Just say it confidently, you know, or like me. Sometimes I just say them in Spanish, Michar and Amiel, you know. Sounds good. I don't know if it's right or not, but you just got to say it with confidence. In verse 6, Meshibotheth 
The son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell at his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and he said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belong to Saul and all in his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that the master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth and his master's grandson shall eat at my table regularly. And I love this. King David, out of the goodness of his heart, wanted to show favor on his best friend's son. And even a wicked king who was trying to kill him, Saul, he says, because he was the Lord's anointed, we're going to continue to keep my promise and my word to never let that fall or falter. And I love how they, they repeated that this grandson was going to sit at David, King David's table. Now, that's just not just having people over for dinner. This is the king's table. That means if you got to dine with the king, you were well protected because all the king's armed men were all around protecting you. You got the best of the land, the best food, the best wine, the best drink, the best delicacies and sweets. You have the best because you dine with the king. Not only that, you had favor from the king, and you probably were given resources from the king. We have the same today, family. And what I love about this story is that David had to work with him in order to remove all of these false ideas that were in his head. I'm just a dead dog, and I'm unworthy. And why do you even consider me? Why do you even care about me, King David? And many Christians can still say the same today. I'm just nothing. I'm just but filthy rags. I'm, I'm just a worthless little worm. I'm, I'm just eking my way through existence and hoping that I do make it through the pearly gates. And God wants to remove some of the thoughts that we have in our minds. And today, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, there's a few bits of encouragement I want to share. And the first is that guilt will keep you from grace. Guilt will keep you from grace. There are some awesome preachers in the late 19th century uh, we got Charles Spurgeon, you got Joseph Parker. And I remember one day, uh, Joseph Parker, he said, we need to pray for Spurgeon's orphanage because the orphans who are brought there are in such poor condition. But for whatever reason, somebody brought word to Spurgeon and what they said was, you know, Parker's over there saying how a poor of a condition your orphanage is. The words got twisted somehow. And Spurgeon got so upset that another preacher would criticize an orphanage regardless of its condition. And that Sunday, Spurgeon just let out this scathing attack, this verbal assault on Parker. So the next Sunday, Parker's church was completely packed because they wanted to hear his rebuttal. And the church was packed to capacity, and he got up there, and he didn't even respond to those allegations and to that attack. He said, today is the Sunday that Spurgeon's church takes an offering for that orphanage. I want us as a church to take the offering as well. And the ushers had to empty the offering plates three times in order to bring in the hall of everybody who gave. And of course, Spurgeon was humbled completely by this. And he went up to Parker and he said, you have practiced grace on me and have given me what I didn't deserve. In fact, you gave me what I needed. And I'm so thankful that these two understood grace, but for many of us, we don't. Many of us, we do something wrong and come on now, we have done some dumb things in our lives. We do some bad things, but sometimes we can let a sin that's even already forgiven 
determine how we feel about ourselves and dictate our view on God. We, we think we're not good enough. Why do I keep messing up? I wonder what people think about me. God must not love me because I keep messing up and all these different things. And we walk in this guilt, but you and I cannot afford to walk in guilt. As New Covenant Christians, we were never designed to carry guilt. I remember going to Bethel Church one time. We were on vacation uh, visiting Nikki's sister in Santa Cruz. And, you know, when you're on vacation, you always have to put church on that list of fun things to do and visit somewhere else. And especially being a pastor, I love being incognito at another church. Nobody knows I'm a pastor and get to sit around and have fun. And and, uh, there's one time, too, where I sat down at a restaurant and somebody sat next to me and they presented the entire gospel. And this is probably a sin, but I let them lead me to the Lord, even though I was a pastor, just to make them feel good. I'm like, look at you, you know, like, I just have fun with that. But we went to church and I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, dropping Gabriel off. He was real little. We dropped him off at the uh, kids church and the line was so long. We were about 10 minutes late getting into the service. So I walked up to the greeter at the door. And I said, ah, oh, so sorry, we're coming in late. And she literally wiped my shoulders and she says, well, baby, let's just get all that condemnation off of you, huh? I said, how awesome. I never forgot that. Romans tells us that therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We were not not designed to carry guilt. We need to walk in a healthy balance of this and realize that God is for us and he's not out to get us. In uh, John chapter 16, verse 8 and 9, there's this famous scripture that a lot of Christians love. It says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. There's many believers who feel like God's main job is to get us, to convict us, to make us feel bad about our sin. There's some believers that they don't feel like they actually had church unless they feel like dirty, rotten sinners on the way out. You know, and a big preacher's index finger telling them that they need to repent and turn and burn and all these type of things. And that's not how it is. Have you noticed that in John 16, it, it doesn't say anything about the believer? It says the world. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. The world has no clue about the grace of God. The world needs to know your sin is bad and you need a savior. That was the whole point of the law. The whole point of the law that was installed by Moses was to show the need of a savior and that we couldn't do it on our own. No, no, no. It it doesn't convict the believer. It convicts the world. But you know what God does love to do? He loves to convict us still, but convict us of our righteousness. And that's so, so an amazing thing that, that when you sin and you don't know grace, you want to run away to the Father and fix it yourself. But when you truly understand grace and you mess up, you say, I need my Father. I need to run to my God because he'll make it better. He'll make it right. And so we, we need to understand that God is for us, that he wants to bless us, that he wants to help us partner. But at the same time, he's not going to change your mind for you. We have to renew our mind. The Bible says that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the anger of God. And when you see God just continually bring things that turn around in your life, that he, he releases favor, that he opens door that no man can, can open, and you realize God loves me. And that love draws you closer to his heart and wanting to not sin because I don't want to mess up my relationship with God. You see, when you sin, God's back doesn't turn against you. But when you sin, you turn your back against God. And he'll keep pursuing you. But we got to see the kindness of God and get rid of this guilt so that we can see him face to face. Guilt will keep you from grace. The second thing is that fear will keep you from faith. Fear will keep you from faith. When I was in second grade, my sister was in third grade. And in her third grade class, there was this kid named Jake. Now, that's, you know, cool name, right, Jake? That's a cool name. But something was different about Jake. 
And the fact is, he was six foot tall as an eight-year-old. He had some condition that made him grow to a man's height and at just eight years old. So you can imagine a bunch of second and third graders on the playground completely terrified of this giant. Jake the giant is what they called him. And he was a real quiet kid. You can imagine you're, you're two feet taller than everyone else on the playground and people look at you strange and don't want to talk to you. So he was a quiet, poor kid, right? But six foot tall and he was huge. He was a big boy as well. And one day on the playground, he was out there just doing his thing and a couple of little punk kids, they, they dared one of their friends to go up and kick Jake. So sure enough, these kids sneak up and they kick him right in his rear end and start laughing. And the second they heard that kick, it was like a movie. Every kid on the playground just froze. You saw the bouncy balls in slow motion roll away. And then out of nowhere, everybody comes swarming in to see the murder that's about to ensue, right? And so we get there and Jake turns around slowly and you think he's about to pummel this kid. But instead, he starts crying. And he runs to the noon duty and, and tells on the little boys that kicked him. See, Jake was still a little boy, even though he was six foot tall. And what it showed every other kid on the playground is Jake is not mean. Jake is not a giant. Jake is just like me. And we were fearing somebody when we had no reason at all to fear. And he actually found some friends after that incident. And for us as believers, we, we have the power of God. We walk in the spirit. But there's this enemy out there who wants to bring attacks and wants to bring fear and wants to bring confusion. But we need to understand he is pathetic, he is puny, and he's been defeated. I heard this thing before that when we get to heaven, when we walk through those pearly gates and we get to heaven, we're going to see in the flesh, we're going to see who Satan really is. And our expression is going to be, that's him. That's him. That's the little punk that was tormenting me all my life. That's him. You almost want to just step on him, you know, just a puny, pathetic, defeated foe. But we can fear. And it, it blows my mind the fact that God has completely transformed us, made us into a new creation, given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have the same power that rose Christ from the grave. We have authority and dominion upon every single demon. We have authority. We can heal the sick and cast out devils and do all these things. But something as simple as fear can stop us dead in our tracks. Something as simple as pride can stop us dead in our tracks. And we can't afford to do this. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear, but it's not an emotion. You don't cast out an emotion. You cast out a spirit, and it's by perfect love that we cast out fear. And so today, if you're walking in any type of fear, you're walking in any type of pride, because pride is also, you know, I, I wonder what people are going to think of me. That's fear, but it's also pride. And if you want to get rid of this, you have to have your Holy Spirit love tank completely overflowing. And I want to encourage you, Take risk in the faith. Take risk. Don't give your brain any opportunity to make you chicken out. If you feel a tug on your heart, if you feel God speaking to you somehow, act on it as fast as you can. Act on it as fast as you can. Let your brain follow you. You know, because there's things in the kingdom of God that our brain can't understand. God's kingdom's an upside down kingdom. You know, Bill Johnson has said before that in the kingdom, when you eat, you get hungry. In the physical, when you eat, you are full. The kingdom of God doesn't make sense. The kingdom of God could be illogical. And for that reason, sometimes we have to get our hearts wrapped around what God is saying, not our brains. Sometimes we got to tell our brains to take a little break. Our heart's going to take over. Our spirit man is going to lead in this moment. We're going to obey God, even if it seems crazy, and we're going to obey him and move forward. And I want to encourage you, take risk, act fast, step in faith, because God is faithful. 
And the more things that you do in him, the more victories that you collect under your belt, not to boast and not to pat yourself on the back, but the more victories that you gain in God, the stronger your faith is going to be. Every time I lay hands on the sick, I've seen God do it before. Every time I prophesy, I don't care what people think about me. God told me I'm going to do it, but I've seen him do it so many times. I've seen him heal so many times. I've seen people being delivered so many times. Build the bank of faith in your heart. And finally, number three, doubt will keep you from your dreams. Doubt will keep you from your dreams. You know, I titled this series that we've been walking through in the last four weeks as Mountain Movers. And that comes out of Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. Jesus is walking over to a fig tree and it's out of season. It shouldn't be producing fruit. And Jesus wanted some figs. I think figs are gross, personally. So I don't know why Jesus wanted one, but he did. And so Jesus wanted a fig, and there was none. And so he cursed the fig tree, and instantly it withered away. And the disciples were astonished by this. They said, whoa, you know, why would you do that? And I, I always thought, again, remember the first time I read the Bible, I thought Jesus was mean. And I said, why, why would you curse that poor tree? It wasn't even time for it to have fruit. That's so mean, Jesus. And the more I thought about it, and this is just my holy hypothesis, this is just my opinion, this is not scripture, but this is my opinion, that Jesus walked up to this fig tree and wanted to create a visual. I like to interpret Bible with Bible. So when I see fig trees, I want to look at where are fig leaves and fig trees mentioned in the Bible. And when you go all the way to the very beginning, Adam and Eve, who walked in shame and in guilt and separated and hid themselves from the Lord, they found out that they were naked, they were ashamed, so they took fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And I believe that Jesus was looking at this and bringing in a new covenant of grace into a new, new testament. And he said, never again do my children have to walk in shame. And he, he cursed that. But that's something for another day. <laughs> and Jesus saw that his disciples were astonished that he did this to this tree. And then he looked at them and said, if you believe and do not doubt, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and be cast into the sea and it'll be done for you. If you believe, if you have faith, but also that you don't doubt. Doubt will get you to rob your dreams. Doubt will get you to forfeit your dreams because God is going to speak to you. God is in the business of sharing dreams. God is in the business of speaking to you in a dream. You look at Abraham, there was a dream and a covenant in which he says, I will make you a father of many nations. Then we see Jacob who had a dream of this ladder reaching to the heavens and he, he realized God's manifest presence. Joseph in, in the prison, he was a dream interpreter. So was the prophet Daniel, could interpret dreams of what God was trying to communicate to his people. Even Mary and Joseph and they're these little teenagers who have been commissioned to birth and to raise the Savior of the world. How about that for some pressure, right? You're 15 years old, little Mary, and an angel says, guess what? You're going to have the Messiah, and uh, don't lose him, and don't spank him, and <laughs> don't do all these other stuff. And Joseph obviously was having a hard time. You can imagine your wife comes home. Oh, honey, I got some news. Um, so we're pregnant um, from the Holy Spirit. And he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever, lady, right? But to convince Joseph, an angel of the Lord spoke to him in a dream. So we have to position ourselves to not walk in doubt because God wants to speak to you. The only time I believe that God is ever silent is when we haven't obeyed the last thing he told us to do. And we're trying to look for something else to, no, can I do something easier? God is like, nope, nope. And until you do this, I'm not going to say anymore. <laughs> That's the only time I think God is silent. But I think God is always speaking. I think he's always talking. If Psalm 19 can tell us that e even the creation declares the glory of God, he's always speaking. 
You can look to a friend. You can look to nature. You can look to the scriptures. You can look to worship music. You can look to all different aspects and always know that God is speaking to you. But doubt can rob the ability to hear God and to receive him. Not only is it going to block the ability to hear God, it's going to prevent us from stepping into a miracle, stepping into the calling of God, or step into what he's leading us to do. Again, fear and doubt, these tiny little human expressions can prevent us from unleashing the power of heaven into this world and advancing the kingdom of God. Just go out there. Just get it done. Walk in his grace. Walk in faith. Dare to dream and watch what he can do. And I'll close with this. Uh, when I was in high school, um, I graduated out of school that had 5,000 kids. My senior graduating class was 936 students. Huge place. I remember one friend I had, his name was Cisco. And he was in the Christian club, just a diehard Jesus follower. This kid was lovable and likable to anybody. I mean, I would see him come out of the Christian club uh, before our little uh, educational period, tutorial period, and he would walk over and chat it up with his friends who were the skating group. And then I would see after school, he would go behind the school in the alleyways where all of the teenagers who were involved in the local street gangs, which we had tons of them, and he could yak it up with the cholos. (laughs) He could talk with them no problem. And I just saw how, wow, this kid, he just, he loves everybody, and he's always doing stuff for other people. He walked around with a 50-pound Bible and a gallon of water because he was an athlete, and he loved the Lord. And one day at lunch, one day at lunch, he, he uh, stood up on a planter, and on this planter was a giant tree, and he stood there, and he had pockets full of quarters. And he started throwing handfuls of quarters out all over the place, and people started running like it was a, um, a kid's birthday party with candy on the floor from a broken piñata. And so they came running, and, you know, a quarter is not a whole lot of stuff, but, you know, over 20 years ago at a high school campus, you know, quarters could get you a whole lot of food, could get you a whole lot of stuff. So when he had a big enough crowd, he stood up on this planter and just confessed this, this gospel, this love of Jesus. And on a public school campus in which we had our own police department at this high school because of the crime and the behaviors, we had a nursery for pregnant teenagers who had their babies, they could have their kids there and go to school. We had 25 kids in the nursery. This is a, a campus that needed Jesus. And he stood there and he gave, just boldly confessed, and 19 kids gave their lives to the Lord in the middle of a lunch period in a public school campus. You never know what God can do and how he can use you. But we can always guarantee that if we let fear and doubt remain in our hearts, it will be the blockage that prevents us from advancing the kingdom of God. Let's pray, family. God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for what we have journeyed in and studied in the last four weeks about this kingdom. It's so obviously clear, Father, that you have said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will follow you. We just need to keep our eyes on your face, Jesus. We simply need to be kingdom-minded at all times. We don't have to worry about blessing. We don't have to worry about favor. We don't have to worry about you working all things out for our good because you've already promised it. So I pray, God, as we go about in a brand new week with a fresh faith and a fresh fire, that you would speak to us. And God, we pray in your mercy, in your grace, that you would help us to remove the things that cause us to stumble, that you would remove the things that cause us to hesitate. God, speak a new word to our hearts. May you amplify our dreams this week in the dreams in which we are asleep and the dreams in which we are awake. May you speak to us profoundly. 
Bless my friends here today, God. May your mercy and your grace cover them. May your protection be before them. May your favor be ever in their favor. And God, we pray that you would lead them in joy and in hope and in the power of your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen. We have a reason to celebrate and we got a great reason to have joy. God bless you, family. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.